Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. So, so as we do start out and we focus on those three words, um, when you think about the word ask, you ask differently depending on who you're asking and what you believe about them. Because I know this is true about my kids, the three kids. Because they'll ask me differently than they'll ask my wife. And you know, this is, I think, universally true from all time. I think it's, you know, it's probably, you can probably go back to Adam and Eve and go, yes, that was true there. Um, but the reality is, like, my oldest daughter especially, she's had open conversations with me. Like, she has a strategy in how we ask. In fact, just two days ago, my son asked for something. She's like... You don't ask that way. And she went to the other parent. I heard this whole thing. She went to the other parent, and she had the script. She had it ready to go, and she said, here's how you ask. Um, the, the, real, the reality is, is like, who we are asking is really important. So, so one of the things I want to do in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that honestly is one of the things that is a hindrance for me seeing this text clearly, is if I don't see it in context. Because if I don't see God the Father behind the ask, behind even the knock at the end, and even for the word seek, if I don't see God the Father and who he is and what Jesus has already taught, I'm probably not going to understand this text very well. So when I, when I opened up today by saying this is one of those texts that I struggle with, I think it's when I struggle with it, it's number one, how I'm coming to the Father how I'm approaching him, but honestly, it's also of a, what am I hoping to get out of, like, is, it's more selfish than it is how Jesus in context wants us to approach the Father. So this, this text can also be a good, and this shouldn't surprise us, by the way, heart check. And I think that's a little bit of what it's going to do for us, is like everything Jesus has done, it's going to become a good, it's going to become a great mirror um, to look through of wisdom to go so when I do go ask, when I do go seek, when I do go knock, what's my motivation? What's my heart? Um, so I want that to, to be part of you know, the background. And, and as we do, I've, I've listed some verses for us, but I want to go ahead and just read uh, verses 7 through 11. So if someone would, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, go ahead and read our, our text for us for the opening today. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to them who knocks the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are, are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. But this sums up the law and the prophets. Good. Thank you. So obviously, I mean, you can kind of see some of the pushback. I, I don't know when you read this sometimes if you're like, ah, is that always the case? Um, but obviously we can approach God, and you've heard these preaching cliches. We can approach God like a vending machine or like a magic, magic genie, those kinds of things, of going, God, if I just pop in the right amount of change and hit the machine this way, you're going to give me whatever I want. And I'll be honest, there, there are movements of people who teach that. That if you push the right buttons, if you have the right amount of faith, you know, God is going to, you're going to manipulate God to the point where he's going to give you whatever you ask. Uh, there, there's some motivation checks that I think are here. However, I also want to, I don't want to pray too small either. 
And I've been guilty of that. Mm-hmm. Of going, my prayers don't, and, and I would never say this, but I think sometimes I act like it. My prayers don't matter to God. He's not going to respond. He's not going to do anything. There's some tension there. And so I want to wrestle a little bit with that tension today. Any other kind of opening thoughts that you have as you look at this or opening observations? Or, or some people use God as a spare tire. <clears throat> okay. So it's only going to him when they have a flat tire. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah, I, was, I don't know that I've ever heard that analogy. But yeah. yeah. yeah get, God out of, get God out of the... Devo, it's not mine. It's Max Lucado. <laughs> I was like, I was driving down the road and I was thinking... <laughs> get, get out of the trunk. We now need God. Um, well, as I was as I was studying this, and, and honestly, interrupt me as it would go along if you have input. Um, just that idea of God as Father has been rich in this text. It's a major theme in this text. So going back to the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But again, the context is important. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That image of God the Father, but also of us approaching him, desiring his will to be done, needs to flow into this text. Mm-hmm. That, that as we approach God, our desire is changed by God's desire. And we'll talk about that a little bit more um, as we go along. But then again, in 6 verse 32, um, we're, we're talking again about anxiety there and not worrying about the things of life, what we eat, what we wear, um, those types of things. But verse 33, um, well, verse 32, I guess, says, For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So again, heavenly Father. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. There's our word seek right there in the context. And so, you know, several different people I was reading this week was making reference to the fact that if, you know, these six verses in the beginning part of chapter 7 hadn't caused us to forget, the context reminds us that God's promise is to meet our general needs. This isn't a vending machine God where we pray for the new whatever it is, right? If I say any one thing, you guys are going to own that and then I'm going to look horrible, right? Um, but but the, this is this is not God just cranking out whatever we want. Sure, if you want to say that. Um, for me, it would be a Toyota Tundra or Tacoma, you know, something like that. We could all, a Jeep, something, you know, we could all say, we could all have things like that. Um, but But the context is, God's going to give us daily bread. Like, he's going to meet our needs. Now, daily bread can be bread physically, bread spiritually, bread emotionally. And then again, we look at verse 9 and we go, which of you, if they have a son, asks for, what's the word? Bread. We'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. Which my son's allergic to fish, uh, like deathly allergic to fish. We found this out the hard way. He was two and a half years old. I was away at a preaching retreat, planning my annual preaching uh, plan. My wife was feeding him tilapia. We ate a lot of fish, um, which is part of the reason why he had um, some of the eczema he had as a little kid. Um, but this time he was anaphylactic. He ate full full fillet of tilapia. Anaphylactic. Had to go to the ER. He has, we have epipens for him. Um, so when I read him this text, he's like, "Don't ever give me a fish, Dad. I'll take the snake." And, um, <laughs> so 
in our instance, we'd rewrite this. If one of your kids ever asked for a steak, would you give them a fish? Um, but, but the reality is, 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 you know, that this text, fish and bread are the, I mean, that's common staple food in Jesus' world. And so, so we are talking about daily bread here. And, and again, that's one of those like light bulb moments where I'm like, okay, how I view God is, is going to be really important about checking my motives, but also where do I find contentment? Um, I'm teaching my Timothy and Titus class right now, and I'm at the end of 1 Timothy, and he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. The word there, great, is mega gain. And, of course, you know, all of it is, hey, you brought nothing in this world, you can take nothing out of it. All those, all those kinds of uh, texts, you know, treasure text is in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. But that idea of godliness, so following, looking like God with contentment. And, and I told them that word is the word enough. Now that might not I mean Paul says there as well God gives us everything to richly enjoy uh, to, to richly enjoy and and so there's an enjoyment side of that wisdom that there's also a generosity be rich in good works and be ready to share generous um, but that but that idea of contentment I think flows even in this sermon your will be done on earth as it is in heaven the lack of anxiety that we saw at the end of chapter six. Um, so again, some of that comes from the context of saying, who is God to me? Um, I put it at the bottom of your handout, but it goes back to the statement I wrote on the whiteboard that I can't remember if it's on your handout for the Lord's Prayer uh, lesson we read, um, which is how we pray reveals what we believe. And, and I would say, you know, what we ask for reveals what we value. Um, our prayer requests um, at, on some level do shape, and I'm recognizing this in my life and in our family life and in our, you know, I can't say church life here, but church life, let's say even at Ozark Christian College. Um, what we pray about and what we concern ourselves of asking, it, it shows what we value. Now, my kids are the same thing. What do they ask about right now? Well, they're all under 12, so they ask for candy. That's what they value is sugar right now, right? Or, or you know, TV time, because we're kind of strict on TV time. So those are the things they typically are going to ask us for. Can I have a snack? Can I have candy? Can I have, you know, can I have a dollar to spend at the cafe at church tonight? Those kinds of things. Um, obviously, our, our asking takes shape differently as we get older. And uh, sometimes it's selfish and sometimes it's not. Um, so those things are important. So I wrote down these three points. And honestly, there's, there's probably a few more things that we want to pull out of the text. But uh, these three things are the things that, that, uh, that I've found that you know, are helpful for me in understanding these few verses. Number one, seeking his character uh, shapes how I, how I ask. So when I understand that God is good, that he cares for me. Um, but ultimately, when I understand God's character in the sense of what does he really value uh, what does God see as important? Um, when I can pray a, a prayer like Jesus prays in the garden, your will be done, then that, that character of God shapes how I ask and, uh, and how I approach him. Um, and so, so I want us to, to talk about that just to, for a minute as well. Uh, it, you know, so I'll walk through these and we'll talk about them. Number two, seeking his desire shapes our desire. And that's the, again, that's that phrase, your will be done. Um, seeking his desire shapes our desire. Number three, our interactions with God shape our interactions with others. And that's where we're going to go with the verse 12, the, what we've called the golden rule. 
which, as far as we can tell, that, that comes from, that phrase "golden rule" comes from like the Middle Ages, uh, kind of that time frame. But it's, I mean, it's fairly ancient when it comes to that designation for it. Um, but our interactions with God shapes how we interact with other people as well. So these three concepts: ask, well, it, it you know, how I ask is going to be shaped by the person I'm asking. Seek, well. How I what I'm seeking is going to be shaped again by what I'm hoping to find on the other side, and even the knock. Well, you know this: how you knock is kind of depending on who's on the other side of that door. Mm-hmm. I knock differently when I'm going home versus when I'm going to a stranger's house versus when I'm locked out of my house because my kids locked me out because they thought it was funny, right? Like there's there's just a different way of knocking uh, depending on what's in that. So so if it is if it is God the Father. Like, we're knocking, expecting God to have an embracing character about him. But we're also expecting God to, at times, say no, because he's father, and he knows more than us, and he has a desire, and we come alongside of that. And honestly, you know, the best case scenario of this, uh, test case of this, is Jesus' own request, where he comes to the father, and he asks and seeks the Father and says, if there's any other way, take this cup for me. And apparently the answer is no. no. Um, so if Jesus' own prayer is answered with a no, my assumption is there are times where my prayer can be answered with a no, but I can still be in communication with God the Father, and, and that can be okay. And I might not understand it, and that's going to be okay because I trust that God is good and God is faithful. My probably the this one of the seasons I was most in tension with this I was actually reading a book by Tim Keller on prayer we hear Tim Keller quoted here quite often by the way our students call Mark Christian um, something about Tim Keller like Tim Keller the second or something like that um, but just uh, just by the way he preaches and, and I love Tim Keller's preaching as well as Mark Christian's um, but I was reading a book on prayer by Tim Keller and he has one chapter of when God answers prayer several stories of God answering prayers in the miraculous. And, I, and I've seen God do some things that I'm like, I didn't expect him to, to act that way, to, to respond that way. And of course, I turn the page and turn, and, I, and actually I wrote a note about Stephanie's, uh, one of my wife's aunt, who was um, needing a, a lung transplant at the time. And she got, while I was reading that chapter, I was like, wow, this is a great timing. She got word that she was going to receive the lung transplant. I was just like, God, thank you. And, I, and I, I do this. Sometimes I journal in the book when it's like at this moment. So I just like journal in the book. God, thank you for answering this prayer. Here's this prayer right here. The next chapter is sometimes when God doesn't answer the prayer the way we expect him to. And uh, her body rejected the lung transplant, and she ended up passing away. She's the one who recorded the video for her family, by the way, of her funeral. And, um, and I just remember going, and I wrote in that chapter, okay, I don't understand. I don't understand, you know, the, the answer that we received. I don't get it. The only other, I mean, there's a handful of times that, that come to mind. The, the other time that was probably the hardest was actually a couple in our church. He was a deacon. Um, his wife was probably one of the sweetest people I know. And um, they had had one oldest daughter, and they had a second child that was coming. Um, he ran the grain elevator in our town. Incredible couple. And um, they had a child, but in the birthing process had complications, um, six days later, the, the child passed away. But I remember going to the hospital and landing, 25 years old, 26 years old, can't remember exactly how old I was, but landing in the lobby. And right off of the lobby at the, the 
as Carl Hospital um, in Champaign. Um, there's a chapel, prayer chapel that's there. And I remember just like, I couldn't even go up the elevator because I didn't know what I was going to, and, and sometimes we don't have to have the answers, but I didn't even know how to have, like, how to even talk about God in a way that didn't just affirm my own doubts. And so I just landed in the chapel and I was just got, I mean, I, I journaled, I, I'd probably go back to my journal and be able to read it. And I was just like, I, I don't understand, I'll be honest, I don't understand. Um, but, but I trust that you're good. Yeah. And, and I trust that, um, that these promises are going to be ultimate. I've read in a, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. I read in a book that a pastor unfortunately said that God wanted to be more than him. Yeah. And like everybody in that family turned their back on the Lord. Yeah. Um, and those and are the, that's a dangerous thing mm-hmm. to ever yeah. say. And, and what, I'd, what I'd say, in, you know, in, in that circumstance ultimately to the family is that we, we don't understand all th- everything that happens. Right. Um, I am not God the Father, mm-hmm. you know, so I can't understand everything that happens. I had a family in Carterville. This is when I'm a college student who they had, um, and, and this was just a, mis- you know, I said just a miscarriage, but it was a miscarriage. And so, sorry for you know, scratch that as, as a miscarriage. Um, but their their processing of it was um, we didn't have our budget under control, and God knew that, so He didn't allow us to have. And so we had to actually walk with them through honestly some of the false understandings of God. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think you know this is this is obviously very very important for us when it comes to the theology of who is God and how we believe about God for the church at large, for all of us individuals and personally that's why this text is a sticky text to me because sometimes I come to it and I have those stories in the back of my head and some of you all have your own stories and I go ask and it will be given to you and I go but it wasn't that time seek and you'll find and I go but it wasn't that time knock and it will be that's why I think the person on the other end of that door it's really important to know who that is on the other side um that, that having a faith in God the Father and, and saying your kingdom come, your will be done, what happens is is that we have to still live in the tension that says we live in a sinful, broken world where things like this are going to happen. God's will is ultimately going to be done, but sometimes it's a not yet. So that family with that um, girl, I have a complete faith that they will see her again and that God's promise and his word will be true. Yes. And that ultimately, the ask and it will be given to you will be affirmed. Yes. Not in the way that they expected it to, not even the way that they prayed for it, but that God will be able to say, I want to I keep my word to you. Mm-hmm. To Christians who starve, mm-hmm. sometimes that's a tension point for people. Mm-hmm. Well, he said he's going to meet their needs. There is an ultimate, I'm going to meet your need. So unless we live with the end in sight, our hope that is ultimate, um, this text can become rather um, rather difficult for us. The Sermon on the Mount is very much um, intended to be, number one, wisdom literature, which says this. Um, this is the way God designed the world. This is who God is. And, and this is how you live in his created world. That's not always a promise. But it's also, it's also a kingdom-mindedness or a kingdom vision. And part of that is this ultimate kingdom that says, yes, there is a tension between kingdom in heaven and kingdom on earth, but those two one day are going to be united and it's going to be resolved. 
And that really is the picture in Revelation, right? Is heaven and earth become one? And then Revelation says, and then there's seven no mores. And I love the fact that John says there's seven, but he goes through the no more death, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things have gone away. And he just walks through seven things. He's like, those things aren't going to be there anymore because heaven and earth are now together and God's there. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I'm, and I'm, I want to hold on to that. But that's the kind of God I want to ask. And sometimes that's the kind of God that I want to go to and go, I don't even know if my motivation's completely pure, so you sort this out. And, and you help me out on this. I think that on the, in this, that it's, that's um, what you were just, the illustration you were just talking about is, is very difficult. But, and I was thinking of in Second Peter where it says that God's divine power has given us everything that yeah. we need for life and godliness through our knowledge mm. of, of him who calls us by his own glory. Yeah. So through our knowledge of him and, what verse and studying, that? it's Second uh, Peter Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think that that's our mm-hmm. responsibility is just to keep seeking and yeah. knowing God and, yeah. and studying Jesus and um, I know I've shared this before in other groups, but I don't know if I have here yeah. or not. But uh, our son and daughter-in-law lost their first baby at eight mm-hmm. months, mm-hmm. and the clergy person walked in the room mm-hmm. and said, uh, "I have, I think you're probably blaming God right now." And my daughter-in-law, I was the only one in the room. It just shocked me. Her mm-hmm. response: She's the first young Christian, so is our son. But she said, "No." God's promises are the same for us today mm-hmm. as they were yeah. yesterday. Yeah. And, so, you know, it was just like shocked the yeah. person who shouldn't have said what they said. Probably not, but, yeah. But, you know, that's true. I mean, we yeah. just have to keep that in mind, that yeah. God's promises, all of his promises are true. Regardless yeah. of, and I know it when you're facing those situations. Yeah. There, there's there's tension there, and, and that tension is the brokenness of our world that caused Jesus to weep at the grave of Lazarus. I mean, the fact that Jesus cried there, I think, is showing us that tension. Lazarus' story, by the way, it's my favorite one to tell at a, at a funeral. And part of the reason is, number one, Jesus cried, and he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like, there's a, there's a part of me that goes, you cried, and yet you knew. So he was crying, why? Because of all the brokenness. Like, not just theirs, but all of ours. And it, that's the story... In, the, in that gospel, in John, that Jesus knows he's trading places with Lazarus. Because because Lazarus was resurrected, Jesus went down there and the disciples are going, if we're going with you, we're going to die with you. He, he very much is going and trading places. That incident is when, when the Jewish leader said, That's, we're done. And they actually tried, obviously they make plans to kill Lazarus as well. Jesus, Jesus traded places with Lazarus. And very real. I mean, it's, it is a story where Jesus, that story illustrates. I mean, John loves signs, and the sign is Jesus takes our place in this broken world. I, I've had people ask me the question about miracles, like when it comes to, and I think, again, God can, and I, I think he still does. I don't think he always has to. And here's the thing about miracles. Even the miracles Jesus did, I have trouble. I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, to be honest. Even the miracles Jesus did, those people still died again. Yeah. 
like Lazarus still had another funeral, which is kind of weird to think about. Like, I kind of hope that he died after Mary and Martha. Yeah. Poor girls, right? <laughs> at, some, at some level, you're like, those poor girls, they had to plan two funerals for him and go through that twice. Um, and, and Lazarus, there wasn't a good deal for, you think, you, I mean, here's on this side of it, we think it's a good deal for Lazarus. If he was with God, that was not a good deal for him. Yeah. Don't you think that's a little bit of why maybe Jesus described? Like the glory. Like Jesus goes, like, this is to show you my glory. Like this illness does not end in death. It is for the purpose that it is to show you the glory. So, So there's a dynamic about miracles, including, you know, those who were lame and they walked, and those who were blind and they saw, and those who were deaf and they heard. But those miracles were only signs of what God was ultimately going to do for everyone. Jesus didn't heal everyone. And only in the wisdom of God did, did Jesus select different people out of those groups of who to say yes to. And John seems to indicate it was so that other people would believe. And, and I'm assuming there are people that Jesus um, saw in the crowd walk past, maybe they didn't ask. Um, but, but there are times that Jesus leaves a crowd or leaves a place where there are still crowds of people who are following after him. Yeah. The, the funnest one I, I think about is the one that, that Peter and yeah. John healed in Acts yeah. 3. Yeah. That, you know, how many times has Jesus been in the temple? Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I, and, and I've asked that question to a couple different, I mean, we've talked about it, like, did this guy see Jesus? I mean, know Jesus from, and there's a very good chance that it's true. And did he pass it? And that's just it. Did he wait? So, so I don't want to say that everything is a, you know, everything is like that, but I do want to say, like, let's trust God to be God to see things that we don't see. And also know that sin, that God doesn't cause everything that's a heartbreak. That God does not cause everything that's a consequence of sin. Um, God is a good God, and he has brought the resolution to that brokenness in the form of Jesus and, and called us to hope in the resurrection and to hold on to the resurrection. Those are easier words to say than they are to hold on to in a time of grief. But I do know, I do know this. They seem to be crystallized and formalized in a time of grief in a way that you, you, you just you have. I mean, you have to be there in those moments. Funerals. As much as I, you know, struggled with doing funerals and ministry, just because of the, the weight of them, they had a way of shaping my faith that I don't, I don't want. I would never want to. Go back and unlearn that, if that makes sense. Those those moments it causes you to value things. I mean, it's what it's what you know. Wisdom, the Old Testament says, teach a person to number their days. They'll live a life of wisdom, mm-hmm. you know. And and I think there's some there's some value in that. So so with this text, again, I don't want us to see you know. I, and I think you all know this. I don't want us to see God as just this cosmic vending machine. And again, that's a little bit of a preacher cliche, but it is the who are we asking? But that goodness of God. God's a good father. You can trust him. He's going to give you good things. And that ultimate good thing might be a, in the end, the good thing. You know, so kind of, again, that end, the es, what you know, theologians call the es, eschatological view or the end time view. That ultimately God will give us what is good. 
Thank you. Back on this the scripture, one of the tensions I have on that, as far as the, you know, if he asks for fish, you know, yeah. give him a snake. Yeah. You know, if you though though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. But yeah, we have people right here in yeah. this area that don't give food to their children. Mm-hmm. We therefore send food home from school yeah. with them. Yeah. And I think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, that's part of the. Even though you're evil, you know, the base the base level of of human existence is um, parental love, and when and when a culture doesn't have that, it's an indication of it's an indication of a sad state of affairs. The erosion the erosion of a parental. I mean, you think Jesus prophesies about the demise of Jerusalem. 70 AD, and one of the things he talks about is mothers who will consume their own kids. Mm-hmm. That was an indicator. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunately for 70 AD, according to the history, not a parable. It's not a metaphor. But it's, it is the ultimate downfall of a society. Now, in the Old Testament, there's similar things. You could go to the sacrificing of children to Molech. Um, but the demise of a culture is a is a society where parents no longer value their own kids, um, and we can talk about abortion in our culture, and we can talk about other things in our culture. What I don't want to do is cause further wounds to those who have sinned in that capacity. Mm-hmm. What I want to do is extend grace to them. Sure. But I also want to make a cultural commentary to go. We we don't value the things that God values, which is life and which is children over our own. You know, over our own wants and desires, or plans and dreams, and, um, and so that's easy to say. And we had we had a friend in ministry who had had an abortion when she was younger, and she regretted it every every minute of every day, and and, and honestly prayed and, and looks forward to restoration and forgiveness, um, and at the same time, you know, meeting that child in eternity, and she has to process that, and those are those are you know wounds that the grace of Jesus can heal. And I'm thankful for that. Um, the greater we see the consequences of sin and the depth of sin and brokenness in our world, the greater we see our need for the cross and the, the greater we see the value of the blood of Jesus. So I, when a culture minimizes sin, we also minimize our need for Jesus. And, and I think we can, we can kind of do some of, those, some of those things as well. Well, I want to turn the page to verse uh, 12. Uh, so, if, you know, it's metaphorically turning the page to the next verse, but physically on your handout, turning the page. Um, and, and this is, you know, probably one of the most popular verses in the Bible, uh, beside the one we read last week, Don't Judge, Lest You Be Judged. Um, you know, John 3.16. This week. Yeah, so I think Sunday, uh, I, I think he made reference to that too. Yeah. John 3.16. He said it was the second, though, and Jim says it's the first. Yeah. We were I'm here. I heard, oh. I heard somebody use it in the way we were talking about. Oh, yeah. Not it being. Uh huh. I'm I sure. Had no idea what. Yeah. Even where it came from. But no. Yeah. We we're here Sunday, so I haven't heard. Okay. okay. It is. It's it's out there. You might as well just hold it up at a football stadium or something. <laughs> well, you know this this verse. I actually had the opportunity to preach on this verse in chapel last year. So I'll be honest. Um, you know, I have a whole sermon. I can be honest. We're not going to do that. Um, I did frame that. Uh, yeah, exactly. She yawns. <laughs> good timing. Um, uh, that was good, Jeannie. Jeannie, that was good. 
Um, we, we won't do that. Let me do phrase it um, and how I kind of framed it up. You're okay. It's a, it's a, I know it wasn't, uh, it wasn't personal. Um, I framed um, this verse up by talking about what I call a three-chair conversation. So let me tell you kind of what God did through that sermon to my heart. Um, there were, you know, this, this, you know, I broke this into three different parts. The first word is the word so, and I wrote that down for you. And honestly, it's, you know, this is a preacher move. But the word so is a connecting word. It's kind of like the word therefore. And, and the, the thing I want to connect it to is the idea of God is a good father. Because of who God is, so you live this way with other people. Because God's going to give you what you need and do good things for you, you turn around and you live this way toward others. So, you know, because I'm in that conversation, I was preaching this text just as kind of a standalone verse 12. I needed them to know um, the context there. So what I told them is, in, in a three-chair conversation, what I want to do is plant kind of a mental picture in your mind. So this is how I typically uh, teach and and, uh, and preach and honestly how I think of life. Um, I told them, you know, I want you to picture yourself in whether three chairs or three people conversation. The first chair is honestly God the Father sitting there. But, but I want him in this chair and you in this chair. And I want you to, to ask the question so God, what kind of a God are you? What kind of a father are you? And that's the first question we ask in the midst of any relationship we have. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What has he done for me? He's forgiven me. He's sacrificed for me. All of those things that are inherent in the good father. Okay. So that chair number one is who is God? Um, you can, you know, obviously you can add who is, who is Jesus as part of that, that frame of reference. And, and I, you know, again, get that from that word, so. As I go forward in that text, whatever you wish others would do to you, um, I'm going to put me in the second chair. So the chair number two is my chair. Okay. And uh, so, you know, chair number two is me. And that word wish, I, I did the Mark Scott thing and I just did a word study on that word wish. And that word wish is really important in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, desire and wish and want, it's translated different ways. But ultimately, that idea, your will be done, is, is an echo that we should hear in this. Whatever you want. Well, the question becomes in chair number two, do you want what God wants? Okay, um, and and there's other you know questions that come along with that. Obviously, um, so whatever you wish others would do to you, there is a, a value statement that is there that says, well, I want other people to what treat me like I'm a child of God, treat me with value. I mean, there's all you know, hear my voice, those types of things. But that that word wish, that word desire, is an important word throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And again, I want us to hear that phrase: "Your will be done, not mine." Um, and then, obviously, the last phrase um, for, uh, you know, a- after this, whatever you wish, this is what you do also to them. And that word do is kind of interesting as well because we can go through this text and recognize that ultimately what Jesus is going to call us to is action. Um, that he's going to call us to do things because of who God is and because of what we believe. And so this, this doing is in part action. Uh, so chair number three is obviously whoever the other person is. So other, another or other, other person. Um, but this three-chair conversation somewhat looks like this. Who is God? Are my desires appropriate? Are they in line with God? And then am I interacting with them? in a way 
that is in harmony with this heart of God and who I'm supposed to be as a follower of God. Now, I think that's fairly simplistic, and I get the simplicity of that. Let me talk about where, where this particular passage becomes you know, personalized in my own frame of reference. I'm studying this passage, and I'm having an argument with my wife in our kitchen. Can I just go there with you? Okay. My wife and I have been married long enough that, yes, we have arguments. Um, and we're having an argument, and, and I'm thinking to myself, honestly, I'm thinking to myself, you're so selfish. I can't remember what this argument is about. We don't, we don't have a whole lot of... Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> But, but I remember thinking that phrase, you're so selfish. This three-chair conversation popped into my head. So now I'm having, you know, kind of like the old cartoons with the angel. And <laughs> Now I'm having this three-chair conversation. God, God, who are you? Completely selfless. God, who am I? I'm actually quite selfish. And I'm actually being very selfish right now. How do I interact with my wife? I'm forgiving, first of all. Humble. I need to interact with that. That's not what I'm doing. So a three-chair conversation, all of a sudden, I had to flip the script. I had to change. Some of those things are, are simple. But they can change relationships drastically. That's the, I mean, that's the power of this wisdom. Now, we can go back, and, and some scholars do, and say, well, yeah, 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 but other rabbis were saying things like this. Other teachers were as well. Right. And I would go, yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's not still God's wisdom. And at the same time, others would go, but they always said it in the negative. Whatever you don't want others to do to you, this you don't do to them. Or do unto others what they yeah, do Yeah, so, so Jesus is definitely, and I don't think he's alone in it, but he's definitely on the positive side. Like, you go out and you initiate the goodness. Like, you initiate the grace. You initiate the forgiveness because that's the kind of God you have is a God who initiates grace and who initiates reconciliation and who initiates relationship. Um, so there's, a, there's definitely a positive side to this golden rule, if you will, um, that's maybe in contrast to all the other ancient, um, you know, kind of the ancient renditions of this wisdom literature that would have been out there. But to me, the, the linchpin that's different is the so. That what's different is God the Father who gives his son to die on a cross so that we can be forgiven. And it reminds me a little bit, you know, of places like the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who have, well, I guess I'm conflating King James and NIV, sorry about that, um, but forgive our sins for those who have sinned against us. And and that prayer is somewhat conditional of this three-chair, or at least reflective of this three-chair conversation. Help me to forgive this person the same way you've forgiven me. Um, so in many ways, this golden rule, yes, it's incredibly simple, but it will renovate how we interact in every single relationship. My kids who can be selfish can at night not go to bed and get up four or five times. Honestly, here's what it's reminded me of. I was a kid and my parents did this for me. I'm so sorry, parents, that I did this to you. I'm so thankful. And I, I mean, I changed my relationship with my parents. I'm so thankful for what you guys did, to, did for me. I, I, I didn't realize that's why you're always so tired and grumpy. <laughs> but, but that ability to, to have that conversation in our, you know, rehearsed in our mind um, is part of the wisdom of Jesus to say, who is, who is God will change you. And that's, the, that's grace. That's not law. That's what I love. I mean, in the sense of law as in a burden. 
this is this is because of who what God's already done for me, and I'm just responding out of that. That's that's the grace of this text. And ultimately, Jesus comes back, and what does he say at the very end of this? This sums up the law and the prophets. Now, he's already said that one time. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. In fact, Mark Scott and I have talked about that. This this actually frames this verse is a bookend in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount of kind of the heart of the sermon, what we call kind of the meat of the sermon. So Jesus starts, so they don't come to abolish the law, but fill it, the law and the prophets. And then we end with, here's the summary of the law and the prophets. And then we're going to kind of close out with some wisdom texts next time we're together after spring break. On the front end of it were the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. So, so in this text, Jesus has said, okay, you want to know how to live in the kingdom of God? Here's how to live that way. Well, this is kind of the conclusion statement. If, it, if you will, it's kind of the final statement in the sermon on that, you know, kind of on that theme. And then he's going to wrap it up and he's going to have some statements to say. And honestly, they're going to be in line with the do this to other people. You know, follow God. Make this, build this kind of a house. Build this kind of way on this kind of foundation. Um, so I want us to, to recognize that. There's, a, there's another place where Jesus says this sums up the law and the prophets. Um, and we actually talked about it this Sunday. That's what I'm saying. That's what the golden rule is. Yeah, it, it's because the so part of it. It is. is it, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's exactly what it is. And then the other is love your neighbor yourself. Yeah, this this text and the two you know great commandments um, are they are the same. Uh, you know, they're not worded the same, but they are the same idea. Is be, because of who God is, because of your love for Him. Here's how you love other people. And uh, and so we can see in Jesus' consist, Jesus's consistency um, throughout his ministry. But but honestly, his approach to the law, his approach to grace, his approach to how he fulfills the law is ultimately in this idea of how we interact with other people. And we've already mentioned. I think Mark mentioned as well on Sunday. The Ten Commandments are framed up that way: how we interact with God, how we interact with other people. That's true here in the sermon as well. And and that's that's part of the reason why I framed that sermon up in this three chair conversation uh, type dynamic because it does actually frame up the how do I interact with God and how do I see Him and how do I put Him first. That causes me to put the other person first. And ultimately, does it cause me to look more like Jesus and lead them to Jesus? Yeah, ultimately, regardless of whether they acknowledge God's in the conversation, they should be able to see the character of God through me. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I can turn their chair to go, he's part of the conversation too. Um, one of my taglines, and this honestly comes from a really difficult time in ministry, and one of my taglines that I tell students is, um, we should be just as aware of God's presence in the midst of conflict as we are in the midst of communion. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the dynamic of, of Matthew 18 where Jesus says, wherever two or more gathered, I'm there with them. Well, that's not about small group or prayer group. I'm not saying Jesus isn't there. He's always there. Why does he remind us in that text that he's there? It's because it's in the midst of conflict and we can forget that he's there. It's confrontation in Matthew 18. And so, so in this text as well, acknowledging that Jesus is in the room when we interact with other people, that becomes really important. And, uh, and so this, this text is one of those I want us to kind of have that visual image of as I interact with other people, because of the goodness of God, here's who I want to be on the other side of, the other side of that, that relationship that's taking place. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. 
For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.